0: You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for today is Subina Sani. She is the clinical coordinator at the Medical University of South Carolina, or MUSC, Asylum Clinic. Your hosts for today are myself, Diana Clark, and Rohit Swain. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Seeking Refuge podcast. I'm here with Subina. Thank you, Subina, so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here.
0: So would you mind introducing yourself and telling us about your role at the clinic?
1: Sure. So my name is Subina Sani. I'm a medical student at the Medical University of South Carolina. I'm part of an initiative there called Physicians for Human Rights, and there I serve as a clinic coordinator that helps refugees seek asylum. So I assist that process as a medical student.
0: And how did you become involved with the asylum clinic?
1: So I have a colleague there and she told me about her involvement um, with PHR and it raised interest because I was wondering, oh, I didn't know that there were refugee populations near where I was living. And I didn't know that we could help them seek asylum. I thought that was a great humanitarian mission. And so upon speaking with her, I had some conversations like, what does this process entail? It sounded very, I guess, difficult to me because I don't really have a background in this. And I was like, do we have to, how much do we have to know about the legal elements? Like, what kind of components are we going to help with? And so as a medical student, we can help with medical affidavit. So a lot of the refugees that are seeking asylum, they are going to have either psychological trauma, physical trauma, or both. And so we can help draft affidavits with a clinical psychologist, with a physician that can document psychological trauma, signs of scars, that kind of thing, and we can use that that evidence. Um, when they seek asylum in court. So they can they can submit those documentations to court and that's, that's quite important for presenting their case, right? Um, and so I kind of assist with that process as kind of a medical scribe, as a medical student. Um, but now that I'm clinical coordinator, I kind of help organize those evaluations because there is a lot of um, trying to book appointments with physicians and psychologists to make sure that the needs of the client are appropriately met Um, I also interact with attorneys. That's kind of my specific role now. Um, And the attorneys will give me specific requests, like if the client needs a translator, I need to be able to establish that. If they have like a specific sensitive situation that needs to be addressed with a very specific physician, um, those kind of things. And so I think the documentation that we provide is very beneficial when they go into the court system. Um, because a lot of the refugees that are coming here do not have very many resources. And so we provide this free of charge.
0: Awesome. Well, that gives me a lot of jumping, uh, jumping off <laughs> points to get started. So when you talk about the patients that you see, what area of the country are they in? Are they mostly just Charleston or go, do they go across the Carolinas?
1: Yeah, great question. So currently we see a lot of them from North Carolina, Um, kind of like the Charlotte area, and then in Georgia as well. And obviously, in the South Carolina area, we are kind of sticking to the southeast. So prior to COVID-19, we were able to see them in person. And since then, it's shifted to online evaluations. And we've kind of kept it that way. So we can kind of expand to include more clients um, that are not just in South Carolina, because it would be very difficult for some of them to get transportation to Charleston. And so I think the telehealth kind of um, method is working quite well and we've continued with that. We've also started reopening in-person evaluations in Charleston. Um, That's kind of a newer thing that we introduced only like a semester ago, Um, but we're trying to reutilize the old format that we had. Um, So that is available for clients who are not comfortable meeting virtually or don't have access to those telehealth services. Um, So we do make that accessible still.
0: Yeah, so does telehealth change anything about what you do? Does it make it harder, easier, stay the same? (laughs) Great question. Um, I think
1: it's essentially the same. So I actually have not done an in-person evaluation. Um, Some of my colleagues have. I do think the biggest challenge would be kind of internet connection, Um, especially if you're in the middle of an interview and let's say they're talking about something sensitive about their narrative and then it cuts out it is quite a challenge and you want to be respectful and it could be a barrier that way. But I feel like that is the only main kind of barrier. It works pretty well for most of the clients.
0: Awesome. So where are your patients roots, roots, ethnically as well as culturally?
1: Well, that's a great question. So they come from very many different countries, um, I think I am allowed to kind of share where they do come from. I do want to be like mindful and respectful. Right. Um, But a couple of countries that have been represented are Afghanistan, Haiti, um, Mexico, just to give you some kind of variety of kind of the clients that I personally have interacted with. Um, Again, not to give any identifying details by any means, but just to give you an idea that there is a lot of variety, right, that covers um, a lot of different locations. Um, So I've actually been really surprised by that as well. Um, there were conflicts going on in countries that I wasn't even aware of. Um, Nigeria was another one. And so um, there's a variety of conflicts um, be, being conveyed, um, some of them being gang violence, some of them being civil conflict in their home country, um, political conflict, um, etc.
0: So, Great. And so you mentioned asylum seekers. Does this affidavit process cover any other groups or is it mostly just for asylum seekers in court? Um,
1: at least as far as I am aware it is asylum seekers. Um, Based on my interactions with the attorneys, um, we draft an affidavit to help supplement their case as they seek asylum in court. That is a very challenging and long process and very few affidavits are accepted. So our priority is to make the most high quality affidavit to give them the best opportunity to seek asylum, again, since so few are selected. And so we have very thorough interviews with them. So they can last anywhere from one hour to three hours, sometimes longer, depending on the complexity of the case. The attorney spends a substantial amount of time um, pursuing their case as well. And then we do a very thorough physical exam and psychological exam as needed. Um, and so then the medical students help kind of draft and write that narrative. So. In an affidavit, you have a narrative about the client's story. Like, why are they seeking asylum? What were the events that led to them to leave their home country and come to the U.S.? And why do they feel like it's unsafe for them to return? So that's the first part of the evaluation. And then they get a physical exam if they have any signs of physical trauma, or they get a psychological exam if it's psychological trauma. Um, and then that's the second part of the evaluation.
0: Okay.
2: So do NGOs primarily handle this work across the country or are there like other like are there other medical groups that sort of do this work?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I guess based on my experiences, we work with pro bono attorneys. So these attorneys are pursuing these cases free of charge. So they seek requests through like our website that we have established and if they need a physical or um, psychological exam to supplement their affidavit for their client they seek our services because we're also doing it for free of charge so it's usually through pro bono
0: attorneys a couple of seasons ago or maybe last season we had a pro bono attorney from charlotte on and she was saying that the charlotte court uh, correct me if i'm wrong but is very difficult to have asylum is that something that you face a lot of challenges with Oh, exactly. A hundred
1: percent. Um, it is a very arduous process. Again, like I said, very few clients will be selected to even proceed to the court system. Um, and so I agree with that and speaking with the attorneys, because that is primarily my role. I have seen that as a huge hurdle. Like we have to sometimes prioritize them based on who we think, um, maybe needs the help now. Like I recently had an attorney tell me they need me to prioritize a case like today just because this person might be in imminent danger. Um, And so we kind of try to triage things that way just to kind of give everyone the best opportunity.
0: Yeah. So moving more to the care side and I guess the more healthcare side, what does culturally competent care look like in this sense and how does your clinic implement that in order to make sure that you're being sensitive to the refugees and asylum situations
1: mm-hmm. um, so i think one way we do that is we try to get a translator um, that they feel comfortable with and can interact with and represents them adequately um, we let them know that we are trying to help them and that nothing they will say will get them into trouble i know they kind of preface that in the beginning they also let them ask questions prior to the evaluation Like, do you understand what the evaluation entails? Like, this is not like kind of like a police kind of investigation, that kind of thing. So they feel safe going into the evaluation. Um, Again, a translator is provided. Prior to COVID-19, and we're kind of resuming this now, we kind of worked with the Shifa Community Clinic. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they provide kind of multilingual and multicultural services, and they do kind of emphasize refugee health and help. And so sometimes the evaluations were held there because it is a safe place and some of the clients did feel safe being interviewed there, Um, but again, prefacing it and telling them we're helping them and it's free of charge and making sure that they understand that before we continue.
2: So I actually had uh, another quick question to follow up. Um, So do doctors primarily handle like the, just the production of affidavits in your organization or like do other medical personnel also assist like nurse nurse practitioners, PAs, um, any other sort of um, non-doctor personnel?
1: Oh yeah. So that's actually something that we've been talking about recently. Um, We know that doctors are going to be approved as far as being able to document like any signs of physical trauma. We're trying to see like if other professionals, how much training they receive and if they have like the training necessary to be approved to do the physical evaluations. That's actually something we're looking into now to see if we can kind of expand our network to, like you said, PAs or nurses. Um, So that's something that we have to do more research on. Um, Previously, we've had two doctors um, do the physical evaluations so that is a really great point and it is something we're looking into.
0: So as a medical student, how many other fellow students do you have working with you and has it kind of grown over the years? What's it like being a medical student in the clinic?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great experience. I mean, I think I've become a lot better at documentation. So before I was elected to be the community coordinator or sorry, clinical coordinator, I had to do sufficient volunteer experience. And so I had to have experience kind of drafting affidavits and meeting with clients and knowing what the process was like. Um, So I think it helped me develop a relationship with some of the clinicians that I see anyway that are in like our network. Um, I got to see the two different sides of like what a clinical psychologist would ask versus Um, Someone who's like a family physician um, and kind of seeing how physical trauma examinations occur, um, how documentations are going to be represented. I know they emphasize a lot of like quotations, Um, so it's important to make sure that the client's own words are being represented, which is why getting a translator is so key and so important. Um, another thing is to make sure the translator is not biased. Like typically you want a translator that's third party, which can be a challenge to find, um, just so it does not appear as biased when you when you compile the affidavit, which that makes sense. Um, but I think it's provided me a very unique experience. I get to kind of also see the legal side, which is something that I don't have personal exposure to. So I knew kind of, you know, how examinations are done and I got more insight but I also got to see kind of the legal end. How do they approach things and how do they draft things? And I had to navigate that as well.
0: And what year are you in medical school?
1: i um, in my second year.
0: Okay. Wow. So you to have a lot of time. Has this influenced the specialty that you want to go into at all? Or have you stuck with the same one? <laughs>
2: <That's>,
0: <laughs> I love when people ask
1: me that. I got asked that yesterday. Um, I think I want to be a pediatrician. <laughs> But I do think that this definitely has opened up my mind, um, again, as you said, especially to caring for groups from cultural backgrounds, um, because there are a lot of things that I wasn't aware of um, as far as kind of like barriers with translators, um, that could be one thing and making sure that they're being communicated well, because I know sometimes translators will tell me, it doesn't It doesn't really, um, fit what they're saying. Like, I have to think a little bit to make sure I communicate what they're saying. And so I guess in my mind, I'm like, huh, what does that mean? You know, because there's always that barrier. So that kind of helps me navigate something that I will interact with, you know, even as a pediatrician, um, that kind of thing. Um, And also, I'm helping someone who's gone through trauma. I mean, that's something that I also will encounter. Um, So knowing how to be sensitive, and knowing how to be how to listen and be compassionate those are also the skills I've built
0: definitely
2: I actually had another quick question to ask. I know you mentioned translators um just in general what are the languages that are the most I guess like in demand for like translation services like in your clinic if you don't mind me asking
1: mm-hmm. well the number one language for sure is Spanish um, we do have many clients from Mexico or Spanish speaking countries, so I would definitely say Spanish. Um, the other ones are more obscure and not like far in between, if that makes sense. Like there might be one or two clients from other, other countries or regions. Um, like we had some from the Middle East and there are a variety of languages represented there, um, but those were kind of few and far in between. Um, so a lot of the clients that we've addressed are Spanish speaking.
2: So, if you have to find like a translator for like let's say a language that doesn't have many translators in the U.S., like Farsi or Pashtun, or like or just like a language that's not like pretty well represented in the U.S., like how difficult is it to find a translator for like uh, like for like in for not a super well-known language in the U.S.?
1: So we actually that we actually did have um, a client, and you mentioned Pashtu that that was that was a huge hurdle. Um, sometimes we kind of have to get help from the attorney's office. And yes, we do realize that will bias the affidavit in some way, but sometimes we don't have any other option for kind of more, like you said, languages that aren't aren't prim- primarily spoken here, it's hard to get a translator. Sometimes we do have to resort to that. There is another option of kind of using it through the hospital. So we do have translation services available through the hospital. So if as necessary, if we can have a doctor on board, she can use those services to help. Um, so that's also a great option. Um, it's just those are a little bit trickier to navigate. I'd rather have someone there on the call, like on the doxy.me call, be there on video, but if not, we have those two options.
0: So you mentioned the Physicians for Human Rights. Do you know if you could talk a little bit more about that overall group and its role and how that's that impacts or shapes your work?
1: Yeah, um, so... It was started by a medical student several years ago. He's actually a physician now, I believe in Texas, correct me if I'm wrong. I hope he doesn't listen to this. I'm like, I actually don't live there, but um, it was started by kind of medical students who were interested in helping underserved populations. Um, and I think the group has quite expanded. Um, and so we also have some students who now can actually be translators. So those who do speak um, who do have fluency in a language can also help with the evaluations, which has been very helpful. Um, So as a student as well, we set up training opportunities. So prior to you being able to be a medical scribe, you do have to have training and it's about like a seven hour training, like a one day event. So you kind of learn about the asylum process from an attorney. That's kind of the first part. And then the second part is learning about documentation. Um, that's just so when you go and do your first kind of interview, you know what to expect and you know kind of um, how to kind of go about it. If you don't have experience in inscribing, it's, it's especially helpful. Um, that's kind of what we do as a group. So we kind of set up opportunities for people to volunteer. Um, we set up trainings. Um, and then another thing we've been doing is kind of outreach to the community. So we have like some of our, like the clinicians that kind of work with us, um, psychologists and so forth do presentations on this. So they do presentations based on like their research if it's related or refugees in general. And so that's kind of to educate the public and that's been garnering a lot of interest and more are volunteers. Um, so we're trying to work on more public education events as well.
0: And speaking of the community, what's your overall experience of Charleston or I guess the Carolinas information and opportunities available for asylum seekers and not know not only medical care but other services as well?
1: Yeah, um, I think we've done a quite like a good job of kind of connecting um, um clients to resources. Um, I think it depends again where are they from and what's local and accessible to them I know something that and i really respect this about the clinicians that we interact with um they want to make sure that like their mental health needs are met so at the end of the evaluation if they do need help being connected to like a therapist or a counselor or they need medication we make sure that they are connected for those services because that is something that is very very important so they do help them with that and if they need help we ask them at the end of the evaluation. What kind of resources do you need? So again, it kind of depends on what they need. Like some people will say they need help getting a work permit or someone might need help with kind of basic needs um, or they might need like um, a health checkup or, a, or like psychological services. I know those are kind of recommended a lot. And so the clinicians kind of navigate that and kind of set that up for them. And so I, kind of, I really do respect that, that, the, that they make the mental health component a very important part of it.
0: Yeah, that's great. So where do you see the future of the asylum clinic? I guess through your next few years and then beyond?
1: Oh yeah, I have to um, turn over the torch to someone new soon because we usually are clinical coordinator for about one year and then we give the opportunity to someone else. Um, I would like to expand more and maybe work more with the SHIFA Community Clinic. Again, because of COVID-19, our operations did shift Um, And I would like to have more outreach with the community um, and again, do more education on refugee health um, and kind of promoting that. I know one of the older students I believe is currently kind of compiling data about refugees in our local area and is doing kind of a public health project on it. So I'm curious to see what that project will unveil about refugees in our community. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, So I, I just hope to expand, especially in the education aspect and maybe having more maybe volunteer opportunities with um, like local clinics and community services that also support refugees.
0: Is there anything else that you'd want the general public to know about the work that you do or the whole clinic does.
1: Yeah. Um, you might be surprised that there are refugees near you, you know that's something that I wasn't aware of. You know, I've always heard about it in the media, and I was like, yeah, you know, I know they they're here and they exist. And I didn't realize that they were like you know nearby and I could I could be um, a force to help them. Like that's not something that I ever kind of envisioned. It's something that I felt kind of remote from and didn't didn't feel like was something that I could actively pursue. Um, so when I realized I had this kind of unique opportunity, I, I definitely pursued it and I, I did the, the did the training um, and I worked really hard to get the get the clinical coordinator position just because I was like, this is such a unique opportunity to change someone's life. You know, someone's escaping um, like violence or human rights um, persecution in their home country. I have the opportunity to give them a better life here, be a part of that process. So why wouldn't I, you know, why, don't, why wouldn't I help with that? And so I just, I just think it's kind of a very beautiful thing and I'm really glad I get to be a small part of it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, that's all all the questions I had. Thank you so much, Sabina, for being on the podcast and telling us about what you do. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. That was Subina Sani from the MUSC Asylum Clinic talking to us about her work and the organization's work to help asylum seekers gain asylum in the United States. If you would like to learn more about the MUSC Asylum Clinic, visit muscphr.org. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The show was produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your hosts for this week were Diana Clark and Rohit Swain. This episode was edited by Emily Jensen and produced by Isha Hegday. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.